feeling unbelievably calm, to be honest. I, I don't know why. That's uh, not going to sink in for a couple of days, is it? It's, uh, it's just incredible to be sitting here with that trophy in front of me. I mean, like, look at the names on it. It's just, uh, yeah, I just can't, can't believe. Like I said at the ball walking down 18, I just couldn't believe that I was, it was me, you know. I couldn't believe it was happening. And I, I, I thought about it all day, but I, I didn't really let myself think about it until I hit my tee shot in 17. And as soon as I hit that tee shot, I knew that... I couldn't really lose the ball from there, do you know what I mean? And that's kind of, that's how I felt. Uh, so, yeah, it's an incredible feeling, yeah. What a weekend for Shane Lowry winning the Open Championship in his native Ireland. What a weekend for sports. And we get to break it all down for you here in the next hour on ESPN-UP, online with our app. Tanner Hoops with you on this Monday afternoon. Glad to have you. It is a sports pen and I tell you what, lots to get to over the course of the next hour. We've got Shane Lowry and his phenomenal feat this weekend. Again, the Open champion. J.B. Holmes fell off a cliff. Rory McIlroy was predicted to be the Irishman that would win the title this weekend, if any. And he was nowhere to be found after the first day of the tournament. Tiger had his struggles on full display. And it opens the door for Shane Lowry. He beats Tommy Fleetwood for the championship. And the Emerald Isle celebrates its own. Shane Lowry is the Open champion. And what a moment that had to be for golf. Think of all the times that Ireland has gone through problems. They had the potato famine, of course, in the 1800s. They've gone through civil war. And when people were out getting killed in the streets, people were killing each other in the streets. The safe haven was always the golf course. That was always the great unifier in Ireland. And an Irishman wins the Open championship in his native country. Caps off a great weekend for the sport, for the country, and for Shane Lowry. I tell you what, a lot more to get to over the course of the next hour. I got a couple of guests who are going to join me, including one that if you've been watching a certain Netflix show this weekend, you've seen him. He's going to join us in about 30 minutes. Charlie Bramer with the Wisconsin Sports Update. Plus, we're going to do a little speculation regarding Major League Baseball. We love to speculate here on ESPN-UP on the sports pen. We love to come up with scenarios. We love to play the what-if game. I've got one. Do you ever look at a map of America, of where each pro sports team is located, and you wonder, what if this team had been based here? What if it's simple geography that is keeping one team in the playoffs while pushing another right out the door, and it's all because they happen to be close together. They're in close proximity that they play in the same conference, same division, same league. That you have two good teams with only one that can make it. Meanwhile, there are two mediocre teams on the other coast who don't deserve to get in, but one of them's going to get in anyway. Or what about leagues that don't base their divisional alignments on geography? I'm talking leagues like baseball, football. Like, have you ever stopped and thought about it? Take the American League Central, for example. You have two teams that are over 500 that are both in playoff position right now. You have one team that's pretty middle of the road and then two that aren't very good. Over in the National League Central, everybody's hanging around that 500 mark. Everybody's still got somewhat of a shot to actually make a run. Now, if you based your divisional alignment solely on geography, that wouldn't happen. But because somebody designated this team is going to represent the American League and wear red... And this team will play in the National League and wear blue. Because of that, the playoff picture is shaken out the way it is. What if the MLB adopted the NHL's divisional alignment? I thought about that. I don't know if that's normal to think about, but I've been thinking about that lately. And I'm going to show you what the league would look like if that happened right now. So I've got a map in front of me. I've got a map showing every franchise in Major League Baseball and where they're based. I made six divisional alignments based solely on geography. I've got their current standings. We're going to look how much the playoff picture is going to change if we adopted the format the NHL uses to separate conferences and divisions. And the first thing I did was I made a Western Conference and an Eastern Conference. Right now, we have the American League and National League. We do away with both of those. We give divisional names based on geography. In the Western Conference, we have the Pacific, the Southwest, and the Central. In the Eastern Conference, we have the Southeast, the Atlantic, and the Great Lakes. Again, very similar to what the NHL does. They have a Western Conference, a Pacific and a Central Division, and they have the Eastern Conference, the Atlantic and the Metropolitan Division. So here is where the teams would go. This is based on geography. In the Western Conference, the Pacific Division would have Seattle, San Francisco, 
Oakland, and both Los Angeles teams, the Angels and Dodgers. Southwest, you would have the Padres, the Diamondbacks, the Rockies, the Rangers, and the Astros. And in the Central Division, Kansas City, Minnesota, St. Louis, and both Chicago teams. Now, you can make the argument that Chicago is slightly farther east than Milwaukee, yet Chicago's in the west, and I'm putting Milwaukee in the east. You just can't separate the two Chicagos. We're not separating the L.A.s. We're not separating the New Yorks. So we'll keep the Chicagos together. So that would be Major League Baseball's Western Conference. Over in the east, the Southeast Division would have Miami, Tampa Bay, Atlanta, Washington, and Cincinnati. The Great Lakes... Milwaukee, Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Toronto. And the Atlantic Division would have Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and both New York teams, the Yankees and Mets. So what would the standings look like if we adopted this format? If we took what we know right now, all 30 teams record today, and we put them into that divisional alignment. Here's what the standings would look like. In the Pacific, the Dodgers, the best team in baseball record-wise present day, they would lead that division at 67-35. and 35. They would have a nine-game lead over the second-place Athletics, who are 57-43. and 43. The Angels, they're playing better baseball right now. They're three over 500 at 52-49, and 49, but they would still be 14-and-a-half behind their crosstown rivals for the division lead. The Giants are playing much better baseball. They are at 550 and 50. They'd still be 16 games out. And then Seattle having a tough year. They're 40 and 62. They would be 27 games back of the Dodgers in this scenario. So that's how the Pacific would look. What about the Southwest? Houston. Top team in the American League West, they would lead the Southwest at 64 and 37. They have a 13 game lead over divisional rival Texas. They are 50 and 49. Arizona sitting at 500. They're 50 and 50. 13 and a half games behind Houston, half a game behind Texas for second place. Colorado and San Diego are both 47 and 52. That is 16 games back of Houston. Over in the Central Division, Minnesota, fourth best record in all of baseball, they would lead this division at 60 and 38. That's a six and a half game lead over the Cubs sitting 54 and 45. The Cardinals four over 500, they would be nine back of Minnesota. The White Sox in real life as well as this scenario, 15 back of the Twins. And then Kansas City sitting 37 and 64 would be 24 and a half behind Minnesota. So if you took this divisional alignment formula, and you made a Western Conference, the three playoff teams, at least the three divisional winners, would be the Dodgers, the Astros, and the Twins. So you'd have the third-seeded Twins and the second-seeded Astros in one Western Conference divisional series. And then the top-seeded Dodgers would take on the winner of the one-game wild card, which would feature the Oakland Athletics at 57-43, and hosting the Chicago Cubs at 54-45. and so how about that? The top three seeds in the West, if we use this format, would all still win their respective divisions. In real life, they're all leading their divisions right now. Oakland would actually move up a spot. Oakland right now is the second wild card team in the American League. They would move into the top wild card slot in the Western Conference. Meanwhile, the Cubs would drop from a division winner to a second wild card spot. Right now, the Cubs are leading the NL Central, but if you divided them East and West... The Cubs would be the fifth best team in the Western Conference. How about over in the Eastern Conference? The Atlanta Braves lead the Southeast at 60 and 41. It's a pretty competitive division. They are holding off Tampa Bay, who's sitting 57 and 45, three and a half games behind Atlanta. And then Washington, who's been on a tear lately, 52 and 46. They are six and a half back. Keep in mind, we still got about 62 games to go in Major League Baseball this year. Cincinnati then 14 back at 44 and 53, and then Miami bringing up the rear 36 and 61. They are 22 games behind Atlanta. Over in the Great Lakes Division, Cleveland sits 57 and 41. They would lead the division. Milwaukee at 53 and 48, starting to play better baseball. They would be five and a half behind Cleveland. Then you have Pittsburgh at 46 and 52, 11 games back. Toronto 38 and 63, 20 and a half out. And then Detroit 30 and 65, 25 and a half games back. Over in the Atlantic Division, 
The Yankees, 64 and 34, hold an 11 game lead over second place Boston, who's 8 over 500. Philadelphia, 13 games back at 52 and 48. They've been skidding lately. The Mets are 45 and 54, 19 and a half out. And then Baltimore, 31 and 67, 33 games back at the Yankees. So if you looked at the Eastern Conference and you kept the same formula, the division winners would be Atlanta, Cleveland, and the New York Yankees. The Yankees with the best record would take on the winner of the one-game wild card, which would feature the Red Sox visiting the Rays. So on one side, you've got third-seeded Cleveland and second-seeded Atlanta. Meanwhile, the top-seeded Yankees await the winner of number 5 Boston at number 4 Tampa Bay. Those would be the playoff pictures if we went east and west in Major League Baseball instead of two imaginary borders that don't really seem to border anything. I'm talking American League and National League. Things would look a lot different if Major League Baseball went east and west, and I'm not advocating for them to. I like the American League and National League. I'm just trying to show you how different geography can make things look, how divisional alignment doesn't necessarily guarantee the best team entry in the playoffs. If you separated them east and west and put Cleveland in the Great Lakes, they would be winning that division right now. Cleveland is the top wildcard team in the American League as it is right now. In real life, Boston and Tampa Bay aren't even playoff teams. That's how much geography or a committee randomly saying you're an American League team, you're a National League team, can affect a division. Something we love to do here in the sports pen is speculate. We think what might have been, or maybe someday will be. Again, I'm not advocating for it, but it's just fascinating for me to think about. We could do role reversal. We could try the NHL if they tried MLB style of alignment. Maybe another time. We got other stuff we got to get to, including the Wisconsin Sports Update with Charlie Bramer, next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along this Monday afternoon. It is time for the Wisconsin Sports Update. Charlie Bramer joins us in studio as he does every Monday to give us the latest on what we need to know regarding Bucks, Badgers, Packers, Brewers, everything in between with us once again. What's up, Charlie? Tanner, I'm, I'm happy to be here. There are some moves to talk about. General movement in the positive direction for Wisconsin sports and brewers in general. Well, I tell you what, the Bucks were busy over the weekend. A couple of signings come in. Man, John Horst in that front office won Executives of the Year. They're not doing anything to make us think they're not going to win it again next season. They bring in a couple of key role players, let's say that. One that's very special to me, I'm really excited about. Frank Mason and Kyle Korver are going to be Milwaukee Bucks this season. Yeah, and Kyle Korver, that's a move that I had been talking about it on here. We've been talking about it together for a long time. He's a cousin of yours? He is my grandfather's third cousin, so I have no clue what that makes him to me. I don't pretend to be close to him or even have met him, but I know our families are connected, related. He's from Iowa, so he's one of my favorite players for that reason. I'll likely buy his Bucks jersey. You guys, I mean, he, he's from Iowa. Your cousin's from Iowa. You guys are sharing blood. I mean, <laughs> so the sharpshooting runs in the family then. You can always I like say to think that. so. You can always say that. Well, I tell you what, Corver is going to be a Milwaukee Buck, and I swear we are going to hear Giannis to Corver for three. Bang, the Bucks are up 40. I don't know how many times we're going to hear that this season, but it's going to happen. Oh, yeah, Corver is just going to help Giannis just pile up those triple doubles this year. Uh, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. The spacing of the floor. You know, the Kyle Corver is he, he's a liability at best on defense, and the Bucks are mm-hmm. aware of that. Generally, he's going to play, you know, late in games. Typically, he's going to be playing against other teams, second, third units. So defense, you know, th- that can be mitigated. And also the Bucks with guys like Frank Mason, and he's on a two-way contract, so who knows if he'll even stick with the team. But it really seems like the Bucks defensively, you know, guys like Pat Connaughton, you can't say he's a defensive f- first player because he is such a great outside shooter, but he really is a defensive. He's just a hound on the ball on defense, and so is Dante DiVincenzo. So I really like the players that they can put on the court with Kyle Korver to help with those defensive liabilities. I think he's really going to help the Bucks flourish. Just space the floor even farther. Well, you look at the Bucks lineup, or at least their potential lineup, where do you see Corver playing? What role do you see him? Is it 6th, 7th, 8th man? Where do you see him working into the lineup? Yeah, I, I think he's going to be a guy 
you know, like an 18 to 22 minutes a night guy. Always early in the season, you know, exp- Coach Bud's going to be playing nine, ten players deep. And, and he does that typically until well after the All-Star break. And then as the playoffs even progressed, you saw the bench shrink, guys getting less and less minutes. Guys like Sterling Brown and uh, Pat Connaughton, their minutes getting cut and the bench being shortened. Whether he is the seventh, eighth, or ninth guy, he's going to play a very big part. Being able to score the ball, you know, I, I really like Kyle Korver and Wes Matthews coming off the bench for the Bucks. Oh, that is... Ooh, that just sounds so nice. Well, another thing to keep in mind is back in 2015 when Corver was a member of the Hawks, Mike Budenholzer was his coach, and that was an all-star year for Corver. Yeah, I mean, that was his career year, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. Malcolm Brogdon goes to the Pacers, but the Bucks have some, some really important players in George Hill, and Kyle Corver knows what he's coming into. He knows what's expected of him. And, and and it's just another reason why I was thinking it would be such a great fit, and apparently the Bucks felt the same way. You're just kind of nervous that, that Corver would sign somewhere else for, for whatever reason. But. Yeah, because he can contribute in a way that is going to be deadly. You don't want to play against him. Like, if you have him on your bench, fine. You just don't want to have to play against him. It, it's like with how good of a player he is, he shouldn't demand so much attention, mm-hmm. but you cannot leave him. You cannot leave him, even though he, he's not he, he's not the all-star scorer. He never even really was. It's just he's such a good knockdown, you know, catch-and-shoot guy. You can't leave him open, and that just really helps the Bucks. It's like even though he's not that great of a player – he fits so well with Milwaukee and spacing the floor that he's going to take – you're going to have to put somebody tight on him, and, and that just really helps the Bucks space the floor. And, and I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, that's like their whole offensive game plan. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it's so simple, but yet it is so important. He's subpar defensively. He doesn't do a lot else right, not a lot of getting guys open or passing or ball handling, but the one thing he does among the greatest of all time is shoot the basketball from beyond, and that's one of the things that's most important in the game right now, maybe is the most important in today's offensive game, and that's what makes him so dangerous. It's weird to think where these guys' career would be, like Steph Curry, Kyle Korver, what their careers would be like without a uh, circular line the NBA invented yep. in 1979 is a gimmick. One of the best gimmicks of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, how that changed the game. It, it's so profound. It just launched into a whole new stratosphere of popularity, how, how it changed the game and made it so exciting. And, I mean, let's face it, Kyle Korver, 20 years ago, he'd have been out of the league a long time ago right. by now. He He would not have fit... He'd have probably been out of the league four or five years ago in his early 30s, but he's playing into his mid, possibly, I mean, what is he, 37 now? So he'll be playing into his late 30s. And and with the way the game has changed, it allows guys to to stick around like that. And there are some other guys that I can sit and daydream about the Bucks getting. I would love if they could somehow add, like, a Dirk Nowitzki. They drafted <laughs> him. And they drafted him and traded him for Robert Tractor Trailer, who yes. passed away like 10 years ago. That's like about the worst trade in the history. It's just such an underrated, terrible trade. How cool would that be? A guy that could come off the bench and space the floor. Vince Carter would be a guy. I mean, he, he shoots from downtown uh, like nobody's business now. It's funny how he's changed his game. And just another veteran like that would be fantastic on this team, I think. Well, I tell you what, I've got a guest coming here shortly, but I want to get on to baseball. The Brewers starting to turn things around. They took two out of three against Arizona. Yesterday, things really weren't going well. And then all of a sudden, they change in a blink of an eye as the Brewers bring out the power bats, including a grand slam from Tyler Saladino to give them the series victory. Yeah, he upped his batting average, like, how many points? I, 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 an incredible amount of points, and it's still only at, like, 180. Mm-hmm. So, so he was struggling so much. He got that huge hit yesterday. Grand slam. The Brewers were down 4 to nothing. The last month, during this tough stretch... They would get down, you know, and last year they would get down three, four runs, and you never felt like the team was out of it. This year, those games, you were starting to feel like they were out of it, and they were never able to mount big comebacks. And, and then when they would get down, um, they would allow the, uh, uh, the opposing team to get more insurance runs, which is just what you cannot do. 
the last week now, I've been seeing it from them. They look like the 2018-2017 team again, where if the starter gives up runs early, which is typical of their starters, the bullpen has been able to come in the game, stabilize the game, not give up any more runs, and give that powerful offense a chance to get back in the game. And the powerful offense has finally been stepping it up. Guys like Mike Moustakis are really slugging again. He had multiple two or three home runs robbed in that series against uh arizona just smashing them out high off that wall in center field you know he was hitting the ball for over 420 feet and they were doubles and triples on saturday it was a tie game and he hit that three-run home run in the eighth and and hit another big double yesterday keston Hira since his recall back to the major leagues has led the major leagues in batting average his OPS is right up near a thousand now. He just keeps crushing with guys over 130, you know, minimum 130 at bats. He's top five in barreled balls, uh, exit velocity of 95 miles an hour or greater. Um, so that little, you know, what is he? Five foot ten. Um, <laughs> he's like Ichiro with power, and and I just love it. Um, obviously, he's not a de- the defensive animal like Ichiro, but. He is playing much better second base than I think anybody anticipated, including the Brewers. His arm is looking good. When you really consider how many innings he has played professionally at second base, even in college, he was a DH in college his sophomore year, so he played a little bit freshman year in the field, then didn't play any in the field sophomore year, and then his first year with the Brewers played mainly as a DH. So he has so few innings, but yet he is out on the major league field making some big plays, and the pressure's never too much for him. Uh, I really like what I'm seeing from him, and he doesn't turn 23 till late August. I'm older than him. Yeah. We're both older than him. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm older than too many players on the Brewers now. I'm like, oh, man, they sent down Travis Shaw. That was one of the guys that was still older than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but Tyler Saladino, we were talking on the show last week when Ryan Stig was on here. We are talking about most obscure jerseys that you've ever seen because somebody just robbed a convenience store in Kentucky wearing a number 32 Bengals jersey, and no one seems to know who it is. <laughs> so we were talking about obscure jerseys. I remember being in Iowa City one time. I was out with my friends visiting them while we were all college age. I didn't go to Iowa. I was just there visiting. And I saw a Chicago White Sox throwback Tyler Saladino jersey, and I thought, who would buy that? Right. How like, funny. Out of all the White Sox players you go in, you'd think, I want a utility left infielder? You you probably should ask. It's probably like a family member or something. Or somebody <laughs> got it. Been. Somebody got it at a secondhand store. Either that or they got it at a secondhand store. No, I love that stuff. And I saw this guy, and it was when the Brewers had just by chance picked up Stephen Vogt. He was wearing a Stephen Vogt Oakland <laughs> Athletics jersey. But Vogt was an all-star at one point, so that's not as obscure. But it's just kind of funny to see him in, in downtown Minneapolis wearing that Oakland A's, you know, the bright yellow Stephen Vogt jersey. I like those bright yellow jerseys. By the way, we have something to thank the Athletics for, not the Oakland Athletics. Here's your trivia of the day. I don't know if you knew this or not, or if any of our listeners did. First ever major league team to introduce the alternate jerseys, the 1960 Kansas City Athletics. Cool. Yeah. Third that, jerseys didn't happen before 1960. Like basketball and football. They were doing that stuff for a long time, mm-hmm. especially football, all their crazy jerseys. That was something about football back in the day that really made it stand out. But that's just another thing. Baseball's going to be the last ones <laughs> to do anything, right? And they finally did it in 1960. Well, I tell you what, last thing before I let you go, the Brewers get set to open up a series with the Reds tonight, Chase Anderson and Sonny Gray, the pitching matchup. Why are the Reds so good against everybody else in their division, but they can't beat anybody else? It's so strange because the Brewers are the exact same way. They're like eight or nine games over 500 against the Central Division. So then obviously they're below 500 against everybody else. And that's what the NL Central is doing. They're just beating up on each other. It's like they've all made their teams uh, to match up with the teams in their division. So that's what they do. They just beat up on each other and lose to everybody else. Guys like Sonny Gray, he's 
really been hard on the Brewers, and they face uh, Tanner Roark uh, later in the series. They've hit him well. They face three right-handers against the Reds. I really like their odds to take two out of three. Chase Anderson's been pitching better, but Ulysse Chassin, I think he got tagged for eight runs again his last start. Mm. I really, the Brewers have to do, you know, they, they just removed Adrian Hauser from the starting rotation with Gio Gonzalez coming off of the disabled list. I think they really wanted a left-handed arm back in the rotation just to get that change of pace and and get a different look. I don't know how they can keep uh, Chassin in the starting rotation. You know, Adrian Hauser's really been pitching well, better than the numbers specifically w- would make you lead you to believe as a starter. So something's got to be done there. You can't keep putting him out and having him getting tagged for five or six rounds every start. You just you're not going to win any games. Danner Hoops, Charlie Bramer with you. The Wisconsin Sports Update with Charlie here on the Sports Pen every Monday. Appreciate you as always, my man. Look forward to having you next week. Can't wait to see what happens by then. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Tanner. Thanks a lot. And the Brewers are trending up, so hopefully Chassin can start trending up too. I tell you what, let's take a timeout. When we come back, if you watch Last Chance U, then you're going to recognize my next guest. Coindang joins me in studio next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Coindang from Last Chance U joins us in just a moment. But first, your Sports Center update. The Lakers have signed Costas Antetokounmpo, younger brother of Giannis Antetokounmpo, to a two-way contract. The brother of the reigning MVP was weighed by Dallas on Friday. Mariano Rivera was inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame yesterday, officially making him the first unanimous selection. Roy Halladay, Edgar Martinez, Lee Smith, Mike Nicina, and Harold Baines were all inducted as well. And finally... Former Orlando Apollos head coach Steve Spurrier received an Alliance of American Football Championship ring this weekend for being the head coach of the team with the best record when the league folded. No players got a ring, just the old ball coach. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you Monday afternoon. Glad to have you along. And I tell you what, if you've been binge watching Last Chance U this weekend, you'll recognize my next guest. Coin Dang joins me on the ESPN-UP phone line from Berkeley, California. He was the cover athlete from Last Chance U, and he was part of the hit Netflix series. What's up, Coin? Hey, Tanner. Thanks for having me, man. First and foremost, tell me what that was like being on the set, having those cameras at your practice every day. What was that like? I mean, uh, you know, just going to Independence, uh, you know, for, for my junior college experience, it was, uh, it was really humbling. And uh, it, was, it was really a great opportunity uh, to be able to get great exposure with coaches, uh, you know, be around some, some great people and, you know, uh, get to the level that I wanted to get to. So it's pretty cool. Um, in terms of the Netflix, uh, the cameras, uh, being around every day is a little bit of uh, a little bit of an adjustment, you know, but you get a little bit more used to it. Where a lot of the athletes at Indy kind of used to it, you know, they get a lot of exposure anyway. Were some of the athletes returning kind of used to that? Yeah, yeah, some of the guys were a little more comfortable, and you could tell that, uh, you know, they'd gone through it for an entire season. So, you know, it was, it was cool to be around guys who had been around the cameras and said, you know, uh, you get used to it after a while and not as uncomfortable. Tell me about the decision when you found out that you were going to be on the cover. Tell me how that came to be. Was it cool? How did it feel? Um, so, uh, really, I, I just found out a couple days ago. Uh, you know, I had a host family while I was in Independence. You know, I'd go, so I'd go spend the weekends with them and just go hang out and, you know, maybe go watch the Sunday night football game. And, uh, you know, I try to stay in touch with them as much as possible. And uh, so my, my host uh, my host family, uh, the grandfather, uh, he actually t- texted me a picture of it. And that was, that was how I saw it. And so that, that could have only been a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago. So that's how I found out. How did it feel? Uh, it was cool. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> like, I guess that's neat. So, Well, I tell you what, I want to give the audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better because you have a really outstanding story. You and I have known each other for a long time. We went to high school together. We actually went to middle school together even. Grew up in the same town. You ended up going to Northern Virginia. You finished out your high school career. And from there, it was on to the Virginia Military Institute. You were a two-sport Division One athlete playing both football and basketball before deciding to go the junior college route. Tell me what made independence the choice for you. Yeah, uh, 
uh, you know, basically I wanted to be able to maximize my potential, you know, as a football player, uh, going on from the FCS level to hopefully play, you know, college football at its highest level. Um, and, you know, I was hoping to tra- be able to transfer from a Division One to another Division One, but it's not always quite that easy. So, you know, junior college really seemed that it would be the, uh, the best way to make that transition. And, uh, you know, I actually wasn't, uh, wasn't thinking about junior college much when I made my decision uh, to transfer, but... Uh, my options were kind of limited, and the coach at Independence reached out to me, and they were the first ones to really put junior college in my mind. Um, the recruiting coordinator there, uh, Coach Rums at the top. And uh, from there, I really started to think about junior college and took a look at some of the top, uh, you know, junior colleges programs. And, you know, I really, uh, really connected with uh, some of the staff over there at Indy. Uh, the defensive coordinator, Coach Martin, you know, he'd really, he'd really uh, done his homework on me and really understood my game. And he was able to talk about the specific things that he would want to do with me in the scheme. And uh, what really got me was, uh, you know, he had a feel for the type of person uh, that I was and, you know, uh, what my priorities were. And he said, you know, if you come here, work hard every day and lead by example, then you'll be able to go wherever you want. And uh, I, think you, I think you stayed true to that promise. And, you know, I was able to have the options of the places that I wanted to go. And it was a great experience. I was able to work hard and get around some great people and just get better, you know, as a person and as a football player. It was a tough year for Indy. Certainly things didn't turn out the way that a lot of people were expecting. How did you develop throughout the season? Did that adversity, the way the season turned out, did that help make you a better football player and prepare you for the next level? Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, I think you try, to take, you try to draw lessons from your experiences. And so... You know, for me, it was a, it was a little bit uh, disappointing. You know, that, that it didn't go the way that we wanted it to. But you learn, uh, uh, you learn that you know that it's that it's all about the process and you know taking steps to get better every single day and uh, taking nothing for granted. And so, you know, we had a great uh, we had a great group of guys, a lot of great football players. But um, you know, I, I think that's what I got out of it most was just, you know to make the most out of every single opportunity and you know never take anyone lightly. Did you have any favorite moment from the series this season? I don't know if you've added the time to watch it yet, being busy and what have you. What was your favorite moment from it? Yeah, so uh, I was, I've been a little busy this week, and I was traveling a lot. Uh, so I was out of town, but you know, people kept sending me pictures, and little screenshots of pictures. And so I made some time to watch a couple episodes, and uh, it's kind of cool to, I guess it's kind of cool to just look back and think back to where I was at. You know, a year ago, it's a unique place. It's a special place, and I was—I got to be around a lot of special places and a lot of fun personalities, a lot of great people. Um, I think uh, you know, just just seeing the guys on there, the guys that were featured. Uh, you know, a lot of those guys are some of my really good friends, and just watching their personalities and their spirits shine. I guess that that has been the, uh, the coolest thing for me. I haven't gotten to watch all of it, but uh, just from what I've seen, so it's, it's pretty cool. Talking with Coin Dang, the cover athlete from Season 4 of Last Chance U. He has committed to continue his football career at Cal coming up this fall. And you got camp, I'm sure, coming up soon. Tell me about Cal. I know they were one of your final five. Texas A&M was in there. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Virginia Tech was one of your five. What made Cal the right choice for you? Man, I mean, uh, it's, just a, uh, it's, a, it's a great place. Um, you know, to be, able to, to, be able to, Cal, to be able to play at Cal and to be a student here at Berkeley, uh, you know, it's a, it's humbling. You know, it's one of the top universities in the world. Uh, we talk about academics and, uh, you know, the football program is just unique. It's an awesome place. I think it's uh, it's a place that's really centered on hard work and earning everything you get. Uh, you know, a place with a hard-nosed defense, you know, one of the top uh, defenses in the country last year. And, you know, we're really just trying to build on that. But, you know, it's just a place that I felt like I'd be able to grow as a person, you know, holistically and really uh, maximize myself as a football player as well. So, you know, Cal just felt right when I came here. You know, the opportunities here in the Bay Area are amazing. Uh, you know, I got some family in the area. I got a brother who uh, lives in the Bay Area with his wife and kids. And so when I got here, it just it just everything clicked. You know, it's my, my type of locker room, my type of people. Tell me about Coach Wilcox. What about your interactions with him and the style that he runs at Cal? Uh, coach Wilcox is an amazing person, you know, an amazing person and an amazing coach. Uh, probably one of the most humble leaders 
I've ever been around uh, in my entire life. Uh, you know, he, uh, you can tell he really just loves the process, you know, of putting in work and improving and getting better. Um, and everything he wants to do, he wants to do it the right way. And so, you know, his biggest thing is nobody is sacred in this program. And, uh, you know, he holds players accountable. He holds coaches accountable. He holds everybody accountable. I think accountability is that's really important to this program. And like I said, earning everything you get and being the best version of yourself, uh, you know, they hold us to high standards as human beings, uh, not only as athletes and students, but, you know, as human beings as, as a whole. So, you know, they want to see us be great people. So I think that just kind of sums up the type of person Coach Wilcox is. Coin, you mentioned your family, and I want to circle back to that because I've not only gotten to know you very well over the years, but most of your brothers as well. You've got one younger brother that's heading off to the junior college level to play basketball this fall. How much did your experience, your positive experience at the JUCO level, factor into John's decision? Uh, you know, I think I think that's a conversation you probably have to have with him. But um, you know, I, I hope that I was able to serve as an example that. Uh, you know, if you work hard and you do the right things, uh, it can be a stepping stone. It can be a great opportunity. I think there's a little bit of stigma with the junior college route that, uh, you know, if you're there, then you're going to do something right. But, uh, like I said, you know, if you, if you do it, if you do all the right things, work hard, make grades, then it, it can be a great stepping stone for you. Coach Jason Brown no longer with the team because of some off-color comments made to a recruit who is from Germany. I know he's portrayed as a passionate, kind of fiery guy at times during the show, and it makes him a fan favorite. Is he like that off the set as well, off the field, I should say, as well? And tell me what he meant to you, because I know he regrets it. I know that he did a lot of good for Indy. Tell me about his impact on you. Yeah, so um, I can't really speak on that situation just because I don't know the details of it. But um, in terms of uh, Coach Jason Brown, I mean, he's uh, uh, he's a good person uh, at heart. You know, his methods can be uh, controversial, but you know, when you, when you get when you get around him one on one, you can see that he's a caring person. Uh, you know, who wants to to help people out. And you know, I've, uh, it's, it's from the time I spent with him one on one. You know, that's that's really what I've, I've learned. And being able to form a relationship with him, you know, I'll always be grateful. Uh, you know, for all that he's helped me with. So. Were any of your teammates different on cameras compared to off? Maybe they try to spice things up a little bit, or was everybody pretty much portraying themselves as they were? Uh, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that, but you know, I, uh, I want to say, you know, uh, after a short amount of time, everybody kind of just goes back to living their normal lives. You know, the cameras are always rolling, so you know, you're just going to be yourself and, you know, uh, handle your business on the field, in the classroom. Wherever you are, look. Cause like I said, they're they were around a lot, and so it just kind of becomes the norm. Uh, you, you know, you can't keep your guard up twenty four seven. So I think they're going to capture. Uh, you know, they're going to be trying to capture this in as accurate a way that they possibly can. Um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a drama series at the end of the day as well. So you know, uh, I guess you know it's, it's a little more interesting than than the actual day to day of real life. I guess I would say, but uh, I mean, you know, people people get pretty used to it, and, they, and they'll be themselves. Well, Coin, getting ready to start camp. You've got the Pac-12 season looming. What are your goals for yourself the first season in a Golden Bear uniform? Uh, you know, I've always tried to uh, anchor my goals and the team goals, and so uh, really being the best that we can possibly be this season. You know, being the best version of this 2019 team. Uh, you know, being successful on offense, defense, and special teams. You know, hopefully being able to be successful uh, with the Pac-12 North and, you know, have a shot to compete for the Pac-12. Coin Dang, six foot six, two hundred thirty-five pound incoming Cal linebacker. He will be the next terror to Pac-12 quarterbacks. Coin, appreciate you taking the time, man. Always good talking to you, man. I'm going to be staying up watching some Pac-12 after dark this season. Excited to follow your career. Best of luck. Yes, sir. Appreciate that, man. All right, let's take a time out. When we come back. We love list and rankings here. I've got a ranking for you. The top college football programs that have never won a national title. I'll give you my top ten of the reasons why next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. 
Just look up ESPN-UP. You can use that app to hear our interview with Coin Dang, the cover athlete from Last Chance U. Season 4 came out on Friday. Known Coin for a long time. Awesome interview. Awesome to reconnect with him, as always. I tell you what, we are going to get to my list of the top 10 college football programs that have never won a national championship. But first, there's something I have to get off my chest. The Cleveland Indians have been playing really good baseball lately. They're within three games of the Twins for the American League Central lead. Yesterday, they beat Kansas City 5-4 at Progressive Field. They get set to go north tonight and take on Toronto. But that wasn't what was on the mind of Francisco Lindor. What was on the mind of the Indians' shortstop was the little kid that he sent to the hospital. A line drive into the seats in foul territory just beyond the third base dugout. Now, Progressive Field has protective netting, but it doesn't go beyond the dugout. And Lindor's line drive went many sections beyond that. Guys, what more do we have to do? How many more injuries like this? Little kids getting sent to the hospital. Is it going to take for MLB to finally step in and do something? I've said it before. I'll say it again. I do not care if your view is slightly inconvenienced. If you think that everyone should just pay a little more attention, I don't care. People are getting hurt, and that's the bottom line, and eventually somebody's going to get killed. It's going to happen. I'm surprised it hasn't already, and that's probably what it's going to take for Major League Baseball to finally mandate protective netting in areas like this. Don't come at me saying it slightly obstructs your view. The people behind home plate aren't complaining. People with season tickets back there, box seats, they're not complaining. It does not obstruct your view enough to the point where it's worth risking a human life. This is something baseball needs to step in and fix, because if they don't, somebody's going to get killed, and that might finally be what it takes to open their eyes. So far, two teams are doing foul pole to foul pole protective netting. The Chicago White Sox started it, and the Washington Nationals are following suit. After the game, Lindor said, and I'm quoting him, I encourage every MLB team to put the nets all the way down. I know it's all about the fans' experience of interacting with players, and I completely get that. You want to have that interaction with the fans, getting autographs and stuff, but at the end of the day, we want to make sure everybody comes out of this game healthy, and we've got to do something about it. Lindor is absolutely right. Yeah, maybe it restricts the fans just a little bit, ever so slightly, but you know what? Somebody is going to get killed if we don't do something. Eventually, somebody is going to die as a result of a line drive going into the seats and hitting somebody. I don't know how many more times this is going to have to happen before Major League Baseball does something, but I hope it's sooner rather than later. I hope and pray it doesn't take a human life for Major League Baseball to open their eyes. Awkwardly transitioning for that, I'm sorry I had to get that off my chest, but here, let's do this to end the show today. I've got a list, my top 10 college football programs who have never won a national championship. They've done everything except hold the trophy at the end of the season. Some storied historic programs that have produced awesome talent. All they're missing is that championship. Here's my list. We're going to start at 10 and work our way to the top. Number 10, I've got the Purdue Boilermakers. Their all-time record is 614 and 567. They have gone undefeated five times. However, none of those have happened since 1943. They have won 12 conference titles, eight in the Big Ten. But their last came with Drew Brees playing quarterback back in the year 2000. There are a few qualifiers. One being that they didn't achieve Division I status until 1973. A lot of those wins, a lot of those accomplishments, conference titles, what have you, happened before they were playing Division I competition. And what they've done since 1973 is far less impressive than what they've done as a whole. That's why I have them so low on my list. Yet they have produced 21 All-Americans, and they're the quarterback cradle. They produced wonderful quarterbacks at both the college and the pro level, and they have a winning record in bowl games. They've gone to 19 bowl games all time. They're 10-9 in those. That, for me, is what puts Purdue in the top 10. Oh, and by the way, they do have one unclaimed national championship. In 1931, Park H. Davis, who was recognized as an official college football selector, named both Purdue and Pitt co-national champions. However, the university doesn't claim that as a national title. The Purdue Boilermakers, 10th on my list, the most storied college football programs without a national title. Number 9, Arizona State. The Sun Devils have a record of 602 and 382. So they've played less than 1,000 games in their history, and they've got over 600 wins. 
They have been a consistent winner through in and throughout, but at best they always seem to be stuck in limbo, eight and four, nine and three, something like that, and that's at best. They have won seventeen conference championships. They are 14-16-1 and one in bowl games, and they've gone to eight major bowls. However, they haven't gone to one since 1997 when they went to the Rose Bowl. Since then, it's been the likes of the Sun Bowl, the Holiday Bowl, and what have you. They have never produced a Heisman Trophy winner, although they've had two finalists and 17 All-Americans. However, they have had a storied tradition of consistent football. That tone set by coaches like Dan Devine, Dennis Erickson, and Frank Cush. They have two unclaimed national championships, one in 1970 via polling systems and one in 1975 per Sporting News. Both of those came under Cush. However, the university does not recognize or claim those as authentic national titles. Number nine on my list, Arizona State. The eighth most storied program that's never won a national championship on my list, the Oregon Ducks. A record of 656 and 486, their heyday was earlier this decade, and they've certainly regressed since then. But you look at what they've done, especially in recent memory. They have a college football playoff appearance. That came back in 2014. They lost the title game that year, and they were national runner-ups in 2010. They lost the Fiesta Bowl National Championship to Auburn-led Cam Newton. Their all-time record in bowl games is 14-18. and They've won 11 conference championships. They produced eight All-Americans and just one Heisman winner. That came just a couple of years ago in Marcus Mariota, although they have sent six guys on to the NFL that ended up being pro Hall of Famers. Oregon hasn't been consistent throughout history, but they've been good as of late, and they've been good enough for me to put them eighth on my list of best college football teams that have never won a national title. Number seven on my list, the University of Missouri. 678 wins, 560 losses. They've won 15 conference titles, extremely impressive. However, they haven't won one since they were a member of the Big 8, the now defunct Big 8 Conference. They are 15-18 and 18 all-time in bowl games. They've gone to 10 major bowl appearances in their 33 bids. They have two unclaimed national championships, 1960 by polling systems and 2007 by Anderson and Hester, although again the university does not recognize them as authentic national titles. They have produced 11 college football Hall of Famers and two that are in the NFL Hall. I have Missouri as number seven on my list. Number six, how about this one? I'm going with Miami, Ohio. Miami, Ohio, to me, is the sixth most storied college football program that's never won a national championship. 690 wins throughout their history, 461 losses. How about this? 22 conference championships. Although 15 of those have come as members of the MAC, it shows consistency. They have a winning record in bowl games. They've only been to 11 all-time, but they're 7-4 and four in those games. Being a mid-major is a detractor for them. They went undefeated back in 1970. They were 10-0, and but they finished the season ranked 15th despite being undefeated. They just didn't get any love in the national press because of strength of schedule, much like UCF the last few years. By the way, the highest ranking they finished with in school history, they were 10th back in 2003 with Ben Roethlisberger at the quarterback position. I have Miami as number 6 all-time in the most storied college football programs without a natty. Number 5 on my list. The University of Utah, 677 wins, 464 losses. They've won 24 conference titles, and they've produced five All-Americans. How about their bowl game record? 17-5, and 22 bowl games. They have a winning percentage of 770 in the postseason. That includes two BCS Bowl victories. 2005, they beat Pitt in the Fiesta Bowl. And then 2009, they beat Alabama in the Sugar. Are we quick to forget that Kyle Whittingham beat Nick Saban in the postseason? And a BCS Bowl? Utah really emerged as one of the power mid-majors under Urban Meyer. People forget he coached there in the mid-2000s. And then Kyle Whittingham took that and he ran with it. Now they're a member of a Power 5 school. Now they're getting their opportunity as a member of the Pac-12. They were named national champions in 2008 by the Seattle Times when Whittingham led them to a 13-0 season. However, again, the university does not claim that as an authentic title. Number four on my list... The University of North Carolina, 691 wins, 542 losses. They have won nine conference titles, including one divisional title. They've won 14 bowl games. They've lost 19. But how about this? They've produced 30 first-team All-Americans, 30 first-teamers 
not just any All-American, but 30 on the first team throughout their program history. By the way, I bet you didn't know this. They are one of the most influential programs still to this day because they were the first ever college football team to introduce the forward pass. That was all the way back in 1895. The North Carolina Tar Heel football team was the first ever to utilize a forward pass. I have North Carolina as number four on my list of best college football programs to never win a natty. So we're down to the top three. Again, recapping the list in case you missed it. Number four, North Carolina. Number five, Utah. Number six, Miami, Ohio. Number seven, Missouri. Oregon, eighth. Ninth, Arizona State. And tenth is Purdue. Number three, best college football program without a national championship, the University of Wisconsin. 705 wins, 495 losses. They have won 14 conference titles, five divisional titles. They produced two Heisman, 32 All-Americans, and 11 college football Hall of Famers. They have a winning record in bowl games at 16 and 14, and they play in quite a few quality bowl games. They were named 1942 champions by the Helms Athletic Foundation when they went 8-1-1, and but again, the university isn't going to claim that one. So the Badgers are one of the most storied programs, both producing college stars and NFL stars. All they need is that championship, that elusive national championship. I have them at number three on my list. Number two, best college football programs without a national championship, Virginia Tech. 743 wins, 437 losses, 11 conference titles, 8 All-Americans. They do have a subpar record in bowl games at 13-19. and 19. They are 23rd in all-time wins, not just among teams who haven't won a national championship, but 23rd in wins all-time among any college football program. They did make it to the national championship in the year 2000. That was their Sugar Bowl loss to Florida State, 46-21. to 21. I wrestled with it. I could have flipped Wisconsin and Virginia Tech. You compare their trophy cases, Wisconsin has the edge as far as decorations, but Virginia Tech has a much better winning percentage, and they're fairly comparable as far as trophy decorations and accolades that I'm going to let that winning percentage be what decides it for me. But again, I could very easily flip Wisconsin and Virginia Tech. The number one college football program without a national championship. West Virginia University, 752 wins, 495 losses. Their 752 wins are the most of any Division I program without a national championship. They have won 15 conference titles. They have produced 11 All-Americans. Their record in bowl games, 15 and 22. They've had two really good shots at winning that first national championship. They lost the 1988 Fiesta Bowl to Notre Dame, 34-21. They win that game, and they're probably national champions that year. And then 2007 with Pat White as quarterback, an outstanding season where they were one home win away from playing for their first ever BCS National Championship, and they lose to arch-rival Pittsburgh in the backyard brawl 13-9. So again, my list, West Virginia, Virginia Tech, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Utah, the top five. Six through ten, Miami, Ohio, Missouri, Oregon, Arizona State, and Purdue. Here are a few schools that I'm going to give honorable mention to. In no particular order, these guys were just outside the top ten. Virginia, Washington State, they had a shot at winning the Natty back in 1997. Wolverine fans know that. The Cougars came maybe one play away from winning a national championship under Mike Price. Instead, Charles Woodson and the Wolverines take it that year. I have Oklahoma State on this list, South Carolina, Arizona, and I'll throw UCF in there, although their success has really come as of late. Keep in mind, they were winless three years ago. But I'll throw them up there for what they did here the last couple of years. That is our list, and that is our show. Once again, I appreciate you tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. A reminder, I'm back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. Tune in right here on ESPN-UP. And again, if you missed our interviews and some good ones today, including Coin Dang, cover athlete from Season 4 of Last Chance U, you can hear it on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Look up ESPN Space UP. That is it for us. Wishing you a great rest of your Monday. My name's Tanner Hoops, signing off from ESPN-UP, WZAM in downtown Marquette, Michigan. Thanks for listening to the Sports Pen.